in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. Three brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, John Flack, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the podcast where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Russell Guest, and today joining me is your other host, Brian Fry, back from the sunny land of Hawaii. Brian, how are you, man? They had to drag me back kicking and screaming. You mean uh, Spokane's not as uh, not as much of a destination as Hawaii? I mean, with three feet of snow on the ground, it was more like, yeah, I've been to jail and I ain't never going back. That's fair. That's fair. Brian, I, I have to admit something. I'm very excited today. Yeah. Oh, me too. I'm always excited. You just can't tell sometimes. We have a first-time guest on our show, and few things are as exciting as that. But in addition to that, he's coming from the nation's capital. Brian Haupt. How are you doing today, Ryan? I'm doing well. On guard. Is that what, we, <laughs> is that what we're supposed to say at the beginning of a tete-a-tete? Wait a minute. Let me let, oh. me let me let me confirm with Brian, and then we'll let you know if we're ready to resist you or not. Okay. <laughs> Brian, are we ready to resist? Are we going to well, do this? Of course, this? we plan to resist. Okay. Sucker okay. Blue. All right. Now we're ready to podcast. But only in a very American, non-French way. <laughs> Just like this movie. Yeah, everybody's British. It's one of my pet peeves of like, it's like one of those things where like anything European is automatically British. As you've probably gathered, if uh, you read the title to this podcast, we're doing Three Musketeers today. And I actually did a little bit of a deep dive on various Three Musketeers movies. And there is like a scary deficit of actual French people (laughs) in this consummately French tale. Let's get to know Ryan just a little bit first. Ryan, are you ready to be completely uh, out there to let everybody into your very soul? Like, they're looking into your eyes through this podcast right now. They're going to know everything about you with these three questions I've got to ask you. Are you ready for that? I'm ready. Okay, that's good. Like, what is your favorite movie scene involving an animal? I had to think about this a lot because there's so many good options over the course of cinematic history. You know, it's it's maybe a toss-up between the first appearance of the shark in Jaws, the first appearance of the T-Rex in Jurassic Park, mm. but maybe the first appearance of Donkey in Shrek. Oh, okay. Because in the morning, he is making waffles, and I think that's something we can all get behind. I like waffles, it's true. And then the entirety of the original animated Jungle Book, I think, if that can count as one scene involving many animals, is is a particular favorite of mine. I think so. Yeah, that, yeah, I'll, I'll allow it, Brian. So having ha- having spent uh, a week in one of the big uh, filming spots for Jurassic Park, uh, Jess and I went back and rewatched Jurassic Park while we were down there and had some downtime. And it was kind of funny because we were both hunched over a cell phone at a pool watching Jurassic Park after <laughs> we had done this. <laughs> After we had we had done this big tour, we did this ATV off-roading tour, and they showed us all these shots, you know, basically where they were running across fields or where the T-Rex first comes out of the jungle and that sort of thing. So we were just inspired to watch it. 
And uh, after watching uh, the movie again, I really got goosebumps the first time Grant sees the uh, Dilophosaurus, or I'm sorry, uh, bron- Bronchiosaurus. Yeah. Brachiosaurus. Oh. Brachiosaurus. Uh, yes, my one of my favorite things I've seen on the internet in recent months is somebody remade that sequence of shots, but they edited out all the dinosaurs, and it's just a park. And... <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, Hammond's character says like welcome to park <laughs> and, it's, and it's just them both being like completely blown away by how great parks are because I'm a person who likes a park and so I get I can get behind that parks are nice we were talking about it and uh, so my folks were on this vacation with me and we were talking about all the different cinematic places we saw and my dad out of nowhere drops an Owen Wilson wow I mean, literally could have been copied and pasted out of a movie and he just drops it. And I was like, wow, that was very Owen Wilson of you. And he had no idea what I was talking about. (laughs) It makes it better that he doesn't. Uh, Yeah. So, Ryan, what is your go to snack at the theater? I'm I'm pretty boring on this one. I like popcorn. I like it pretty salty. I like it pretty buttery. I usually have eaten most of it, you know, right. I'm usually about halfway through when the uh, previews end. (laughs) <laughs> and then uh, okay. had diminishing returns throughout the rest of the movie. You know, back in the day, I would have gotten a soda, but I think more and more movies are, or more and more movie theaters are offering, you know, beer and other adult beverages that I've transitioned to that a little bit with my popcorn. A lot of times I'm... It's it's popular for a reason. The biggest mistake movie theaters ever made was letting me put my own butter and salt on my popcorn. Yeah, I mean, but the, the thing I always... I always like the theaters that took the butter seriously where they would fill the bag halfway and then put a oh, layer yeah. of butter and oh, then add the rest of the popcorn. And so the problem with letting me do it myself is stratigraphically, I'm not getting good distribution down the column of the popcorn. So I really wish there was a way to, to get a more even distribution of the popcorn of the butter on the popcorn when it's DIY, because I like the idea of being able to add the amount that I want. I just, it's, um, frustrating that towards the end of the bag there's less and less of the terrible synthetic buttery goodness you just scienced the crap out of that explanation that's, i love that's, it that's my job it's my gig man <laughs> i was gonna wait for this but let's just go ahead and get into it uh ryan you're a paleontologist is that right yes i'm a vertebrate paleontologist or paleoecologist depending it's one of those things where scientists often identify themselves based on who they're talking to so you know we have like i can explain the type of science i do in a way that shuts down conversation or in a way that invites conversation and so i i'm happy to invite you guys into the conversation and tell you that yeah i'm a vertebrate paleontologist congratulations you did that job that everybody wanted to do like when they were i don't know like 12 years old or something like that but then, like, I don't know, the, re- the the world, like, beats it out of most people. But you held through, you did it, and you're living proof that you can, indeed, grow up to be a paleontologist. So. Yep. I don't do dinosaurs, though. And that's where most people suddenly lose a massive amount of interest in me and what I do. Um, but no, usually... Like, their eyelids go from, like, like open as wide as humanly possible to, like, down to maybe three quarters. Uh, I would say the thing that happens most often when I tell people I'm a paleontologist is they'll say, oh, I've never met a paleontologist. Or they'll say, oh, like Ross from Friends. Um, uh, Ross oh. was not a not a good paleontologist. Uh, so I, I think that Alan Grant and um, Laura Dern's character, who I'm blanking on right now, are much better representations of paleontologists than uh, Ross Geller. Um, but I actually do more recent stuff than dinosaurs. And I mostly focus on the uh, dietary ecology, so what uh, was being eaten by giant ground sloths and then their living descendants, the tree sloths. So I'm kind of a sloth guy. Oh, wow. yeah. interesting. Right on. 
So, uh, so do you do you keep like a sloth talon in your pocket? Uh, I was holding one earlier today, but I didn't bring it home with me. I left <laughs> it at the lab. I just I just figure you just had had it handy next time like a kid calls him a giant panda or That's something. That's a great idea. I need to start carrying. Oh, I've, I don't. I can't believe I've never made that connection before. That I need <laughs> to have my Doctor Grant scare the children sloth claw. I yes. I will. I'm legitimately going to start doing that because I think I've got a few extra left over from a previous sampling effort. And um, since sloths are so mainstream these days, I feel like you could really just milk it and be like, see what you think is it's just going to lazily look at you. And what's really going to happen is it's going to lazily look at you while slicing you open. I mean, the thing about sloths is, you know, they're, they're not big animals, but their claws are pretty long, relatively speaking. And modern sloths the ones that I have claws from, because the one time I found a fossil sloth claw, the, the collections manager who was uh, running that field trip out into the field, yoinked it right out of my hand and put it in a collection bag and said, yeah, that's going in, that's going in the museum. He, Indiana Jones, <laughs> <made> hard. <laughs> he said that belongs in a museum and wrote my name on the bag and said like, you will get credit as the collector, but you do not get to keep this. <laughs> so Ouch. I have some modern ones, but the modern ones, like I've, you know, I've done, I've given, I've, taking photos where I've got the little Wolverine thing going where I put three of them between my, my fingers. Oh, right and knuckle. Um, but As yeah, you should. yeah, I think, I think I've got a few extras that I don't need to take like actual samples from that. I could start carrying one around because it's, it's enough that you could intimidate a child. And then when you remind them that like, this is the smallest that sloths have ever been. And all the other ones that have gone extinct had bigger claws than this. So Ryan, what is your top movie sword fight? And you may count lightsabers if you need to i um i thought about this a lot and so i was thinking a lot about like what are the elements of a great sword fight and i think there's a few things that a great sword fight needs to have it needs to have emotional stakes or it needs to be telling a story in in and of itself as the fight it needs to have really impressive choreography for me, I really like it when there are three dimensions of combat. I like it when people are jumping up on things and swinging off of stuff and flipping. And then if it's a swashbuckling affair, I think it needs to be a little fun. Like, I think even if the people are in mortal peril, they need to still be kind of like, ha-ha. Um, of course. So, and the thing I've noticed is that in reviewing some movie sword fights to try to pick a good answer, a lot of movie sword fights don't strictly involve only swords. A lot of times it's people grabbing other weapons. Um, spears come up a lot, which is weird. I would not have guessed that spears would have been one of the top weapons to get subbed out for, for a sword. I also think that I have to give an honorable mention to Game of Thrones, which is a TV show, but for my money has some of the best sword fighting sequences around mm -hmm. uh, and has been very consistent with that. And you mentioned lightsabers. Obviously, Empire Strikes Back, for me, um, I, I think that because the emotional stakes on that one are a little more raw, it... it comes across even though the choreography isn't as impressive as phantom menace for me it's still a better fight because of what it is saying about the two characters involved That's... um there's actually an empire strikes back homage in the movie we're about to talk about or no no there's in yeah there is an empire strikes yeah. back homage in this movie. yes i think the movie itself is a little silly but the fight between achilles and hector and troy is pretty and that's sure. another one starts with spears like it's a spear fight for most of the fight and then they pull out the swords toward the end Brian, I promise I am not just trying to uh, copy movies that I know are important to you because of listening to this show. But oh. the, the 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 fight, this kind of does the scene involving animals and a sword fight, but the tiger scene in Gladiator. Oh, yes. Absolutely. That's a good and one. then I'm going to go even deeper cut. The three shields fight in 13th Warrior. 
Oh, oh yeah. God, yeah. You you are checking all of his boxes off. Oh, it's this, not intentional. No, these this are is, all good. This is organic. Um, but I think for me, the best sword fight in cinema history is probably a tie between um, the Inigo Montoya Dread Pirate Roberts fight in Princess Bride or the fight in um, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon between Michelle Yeoh's character and I'm blanking on the other name right now, um, where the, the the younger actress holding the Green Destiny sword. Mm, great picks, great picks. And we wouldn't be doing our job if we didn't ask you, Ryan, uh, where else can people hear you uh, on the podcast waves? So I do a show called Science Sort of. It's a show about things that are science, things that are sort of science, things that wish they were science. Uh, we have over 300 episodes out, and it's me and some of my scientific buddies. Uh, who It's sort of like this show. I sort of have a rotating cadre of co-hosts who come on and talk with me about stuff. And sometimes we'll just discuss a couple of science stories that are in the news. Other times we'll have on a guest. Um, we've had on some really amazing guests in the past as well. But we've also had on like people who are grad students and are doing really cool work, but often aren't asked to talk about it because even though grad students are on the front lines of science, they're often not the people that are getting a, a lot of press for the hard work they do. So we really try to spread ourselves out across all of science and um, create sort of the conversations you would hear if you went to the departmental happy hour you know, with, with the people that were in your lab and just kind of kept talking about work while having a beer. And that's sort of the vibe we're going for. So smart, right on. but laid back. Uh, today, as previously mentioned, we're going to do The Three Musketeers. This movie comes out in 1993 on November 12th. It grosses $53.8 million. It places in the box office 21st, so this does pretty well. Uh, Disney promotes the movie well, and it uh, does pretty strong on the year. It comes in behind Tombstone at 20th, and it comes ahead of Rookie of the Year at 22nd. Uh, these are some other movies I enjoy. Uh, the number one movie that year, if you're wondering, was Jurassic Park. Uh, all this talk of dinosaurs. Uh, IMDb gives this movie a 6.4. The critics of Rotten Tomatoes don't like it. They give it a 31%. And boo. Yeah, thank you. I was hoping someone would boo that. Uh, and the audience score comes to its defense and gives it a 62%. Still not super high. And uh, I hate to say it, but Chris O'Donnell got nominated for a Golden Raspberry Award for the Worst Supporting Actor uh, for his work on this film. But he lost to Woody Harrelson for Indecent Proposal. So with that being said, <laughs> have you guys seen The Three Musketeers? What, what was your first time seeing it? What was your background seeing it? Just, uh, just establish your biases coming in. Ryan, why don't you take this one first? I honestly can't remember the first time I saw this. It felt like it was just a, a VHS later DVD that was always available to me. Um, I remember, I guess, that uh, my parents were early adopters of the technology of having a TV in the car to keep the kids occupied during road trips. Um, but I think our first iteration of that was literally a TV that they got that could plug into the cigarette lighter on top of a milk crate. Like, it was not... Uh, a factory installed product. Um, and I feel like this was one of the VHSs that we just had available that we could watch. So we probably watched it a ton of times on road trips. And then later we got the DVD and it was just one of those that was always in the car. So anytime we were bored, it was, you know, do we want to watch three Musketeers? Do we want to watch what about Bob? Do we want to watch captain Ron? Like we, those were in the, the stable of um, consistent classics around the home. And so it's just been imprinted on my brain from a young age. I can't even remember uh, the first instance of it. So and so this is comfort food for, for Ryan. What about you? Uh, what about you, Fry? I uh, completely agree. 
uh, on the comfort food aspect of this movie. Uh, I keep a small DVD case that I can take with me on sort of trips where I think there may just be a DVD player in a hotel room or something. And the case has about 10 movies and this is one of them. Um, first time I saw it, I'm going to guess was in Hardy County, West Virginia. Um, a lot of my early movie watching happened while I was, um, staying with my grandparents on a farm and, uh, the one, like there were like four buildings in downtown and, uh, one of them was a movie rental place. And, uh, I too probably rented Captain Ron more than my fair share of, uh, of times, but this was definitely one of them, um, quickly purchased on VHS and on DVD. And I've really been disappointed to find that you cannot find this movie on Blu-ray. Really? I, I looked, uh, because we're doing this podcast, I decided to look again. I know I've looked in the past and at least not that I've been able to find maybe bootleg where someone's tried to up the, the quality, but I have not found it. Brian, what if I told you you could get a 2011 version of the three Musketeers on Blu-ray? Would that make you feel good? Uh, would that be the 2011 one that with the, the blimps? Yes. Yeah. It, if you can't tell by the tone of my, if you can't tell by the tone of my voice, it. it's bad. <laughs> I definitely watched it. Um, yeah, I watched it. Yeah. Okay. Um, as for me, I also saw this one back in 94. As soon as it hit uh, the VHS, I was a huge fan of it uh, as a kid. I definitely had a plastic sword that was Musketeers-esque. It, you know, didn't, the handle wasn't as elaborate, but loved that thing. I wore it down till it broke. As you can tell, this made quite an impact on me because I had to be D'Artagnan. I loved this movie as a kid. Uh, I did not keep it in my rotation or own it like you guys do, and so or did, I should say. And so this stayed out of my rotation until one day I was like watching Stars and Summer back from college or something on TV, and it just came on, and I was like, whoa, forgot about this movie. Liked it, really enjoyed it, and then again, put it down for a long time. So it's been over 10 years since I've seen it, so few, long gaps between. I think you do have the most D'Artagnan-esque hair of any of yeah. us. I, I did have I did have long curly hair like that. I recently have had to cut it off because the density is not there for me. I did rock the long curly hair for a long time. So we've got to tell people that we are going to spoil this movie. So if you haven't seen it and you care deeply about what happens in this movie, you're going to want to turn this off. However, if you don't mind spoilers or if you haven't seen this movie, please stick around. We'll be back after these messages. It's your 44th president, Barack Obama. Now that I'm no longer president, I enjoy watching movies. Listen to podcasts occasionally. All having a drink with one of those little tiny yellow umbrellas in it. Uh, Michelle turned me on to one of her favorite podcasts, the Retro Movie Roundtable. I love it too. I'm here today to tell you this great podcast needs our help. We need to come together and go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get to a podcast and give a rating and review. Then after that, Give it maybe one of those thumbs up from Facebook. If you want, you can even send an email to RetroMovieRoundTableYahoo.com uh, America, with your participation, we can take this great podcast to new heights we never thought possible. Can we build a show that I love a better tomorrow? Yes, we can. I'm Barack Obama. Uh, I endorse this message. Well, thanks for listening to those messages. As mentioned before, we are now getting into spoilers. So if you care deeply, uh, you don't know want to know what happens in this movie, turn it off. Otherwise, 
on with the show. Ryan, would you like to give people a plot review about what happens in The Three Musketeers? I will do my best. The year is 1625, and we are in France. Cardinal Richelieu is consolidating power against King Louis XIII, recently married to Anne of Austria in an arranged marriage. A young upstart Gascon uh, named D'Artagnan decides to head from his home to Paris to join the Musketeers. Little does he know that the Musketeers have been disbanded upon the orders of the wicked Cardinal Richelieu. D'Artagnan arrives in Paris after being chased by a mob out of Gascon. He has a brief encounter with the queen and one of her ladies-in-waiting, Constance, when he mistakes her guards for attackers and attacks them because D'Artagnan is very impulsive and prone to get in fights, as the rest of the movie will demonstrate. Once in Paris, D'Artagnan proceeds to uh, make enemies at the now disbanded Musketeers headquarters, getting himself challenged to a duel by one of the remaining uh, people in that facility, and then while being chased through the streets of France, has two more encounters with two other men, both of which challenge him to duels, leading to a situation of three duels in one day. Meeting his first duel outside of the city, he realizes that he has indeed found three musketeers that he is now going to have to try to kill because honor demands it. They are interrupted by the Cardinal's guards who demand the surrender of the Musketeers. D'Artagnan fights with the Musketeers against the guards. They successfully defeat the guards. The three Musketeers run away. D'Artagnan decides to joust with a tiny little sword against the evil Colonel Rochefort, who is may or may not be named after a smelly kind of a cheese and has one eye and seems to have some connection to our three other Musketeers. D'Artagnan is captured sent to jail, he escapes his jail cell, overhears the cardinal meeting with a dark and mysterious woman, uh, Countess de Winter, about a plot to work with the Duke of Buckingham to potentially stop the upcoming impending war with England. It has to do with a treaty being signed by the Duke before the King's birthday, being transported across the English Channel starting in the French town of Calais. D'Artagnan is captured again, uh, meets the Cardinal, finds out that his father, who was a musketeer, may or may not have been killed because of discovering part of this same Cardinal's plot and is sent to be beheaded, which was an entertainment spectacle at the time, which is kind of disturbing. Instead of being beheaded, D'Artagnan finds out that his three musketeer friends, Athos, Porthos, and Aramis, are actually there to rescue him, and they escape in the Cardinal's carriage, and a delightful merry chase ensues. Uh, they, The group gets separated. D'Artagnan ends up on a horse trying to get to Calais, but exhausted, he falls from his horse and is rescued by the Countess de Winter, and he awakes in her chambers. He is potentially seduced by her, but instead realizes that she is the spy that he has been sent to intercept, and he attempts to fight her off before being kicked in the face and loaded upon a ship in Calais. Fortunately for him, his three buddies, the three musketeers, have already taken over that ship, and another fight happens, and they are able to capture the Countess and get the information about the upcoming plot and assassination attempt of the king at the king's upcoming birthday celebration. The Musketeers then rally the troops of their formerly disbanded but still willing to help out to protect the King Musketeers. They head back to Paris just in time to attend the King's birthday party where a sniper is perched on the roof, ready to take out the King. D'Artagnan spies the sniper, climbs to the roof, is able to stop the shot from getting off, and the Musketeers reveal themselves as ready to defend the King. A mighty battle occurs in which the Cardinal thinks that he will then 
pin everything on the musketeers and claim that the murder of the king was was done by them. Uh, but instead, the musketeers are able to pursue, and in the chase, it is revealed that they have got Cardinal Richelieu dead to rights and that they were able to capture the treaty before it was ever signed by the duke. The king asserts himself by punching the cardinal out of a boat. D'Artagnan is victorious against the sniper and is subsequently given a tunic to become one of the musketeers. And the mob that was chasing D'Artagnan for sleeping with a guy's sister at the beginning of the movie returns, only to be chased by the entirety of the musketeers, presumably leaving the king completely undefended. The end. Wow. I don't want to clap into the microphone, but that is, I'm slow clapping. Just like, wow. Well, after punching the cardinal in the face, he probably had that, you know. That's right. They were like, well, the king clearly has learned to defend himself. Good form. Good form. Love this movie. On guard. Wait, no, that's, no, we're not there yet. That's Touche. <laughs> there we go. That's what I say. Repost. And how's your footwork? <laughs> and so we move again. Brian, why don't we go, let's go ahead and hit him right real quick. Give him a cast rundown, and then we'll get into the story and the cast all at the same time today. All right. So this one's really top heavy, guys. So we're going to start uh, with uh, Charlie Sheen as Aramis, one of three. Kiefer Sutherland as Athos, two of three. And Oliver Platt as Porthos, which is three of three. And Chris O'Donnell, who will always be uh, D'Artagnan, but who will never really be part of the three. Do you, ever, do you guys ever feel like, you know, D'Artagnan is such an integral part of the book and, you know, the story. But it's really about three guys and this other young guy who eventually gets to become one of them. But it's really just about them. Don't feel bad. He'll get to be Robin. <laughs> Yeah, that was a winner, too. Uh, <laughs> Tim Curry as Cardinal Richelieu. We have Rebecca de Mornay as Countess de Winter, uh, or as Sabine, as uh, Athos calls her in this movie. Uh, Gabrielle Anwar as Queen Anne. Michael Will Wincott as Rochefort. Paul McGann as Gerard. Uh, Julie Deeply as Constance. And Hugh O'Connor as King Louis. And the worst haircut ever he's awkward uh i mean it, it probably was both an actual wig for the production and intended to be a wig in the historical sense of men wearing wigs yeah i mean that one's a, that was just a brutal brutal wig yeah it's true but when you consider that most of the most musketeers had uh, mullets it's probably it was the early 90s what what were they supposed to have <laughs> <laughs> this was the t MacGyver was the hottest show. <laughs> was, they were all just MacGyver Frenchmen. Let's go around here. W what is your take on each of the Musketeers? Let's start with uh, Aramis, uh, who was played by Charlie Sheen. He's a man of deep faith, but also, and unexpectedly for a man of deep faith, a bit of a ladies' man. Brian, what do you think about Charlie Sheen? I, I'm just curious what he nicknamed his sword in that movie. <laughs> Ryan. From what I've heard in interviews with Kiefer Sutherland, terrible on horses and really hated them. Well, that's kind of funny because uh, apparently uh, O'Donnell, Sutherland, and Platt all had to do six months of sword training and uh, or fencing and uh, horseback riding lessons. But because uh, Charlie Sheen was so busy with like Hot Shots Part Deux and Deux. Uh, uh, oh, classic. Uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, he couldn't join them for any of that. So I... It's funny, I didn't necessarily detect him being any less skillful with the sword than the others, but uh, I was kind of looking for that. He didn't he didn't get as much practice in as they did, so maybe that's why Kiefer Sutherland was saying that. Well, Kiefer was also raised by old Hollywood 
dad, Donald Sutherland. And so I've heard that like Kiefer growing up when he said he wanted to be an actor, his dad was like, okay, well then you need to learn horseback riding and you need to learn fencing and you need to learn all of these things that like old timey actors needed to know because there wasn't stuntmen and it was the studio system. So it sounds like Kiefer Sutherland had every type of coaching, but maybe acting. I think maybe you also need to be a famous person's child because Hollywood works on nepotism. That's just... That's, and, that's I mean, so does the American university system. Zing. Shot across the bow. So what do we think about... Uh, we, talk, we got into him a little bit with Keith for, Keith for Sutherland. So what do we think about Athos, the character? He's a man uh, of secrets, uh, maybe carrying a guilty burden on him. So what do we think about this character, Brian? Well, he takes his drinking very seriously. He certainly does. Uh, Ryan? He's ambidextrous when it comes to sword fighting, and that's a plus for me. Ooh, good Absolutely. catch. I, I don't know. I just I felt like he's the leader of the pack, maybe. You're Leonardo of the Ninja Turtles. So, okay, I was thinking about the Ninja Turtles a lot. I'm not going to lie. And I, I feel like because of his rage issues, it might have he might be Raph. But you're definitely right when it comes to his leaderly qualities as a Leonardo. But I, I was thinking about that. I was going to give D'Artagnan... Uh, my my Raphael because he's hot headed as well. Yeah, but Dorte is the baby, which kind of makes him more of a Michelangelo. But he's not as fun loving as your Porthos. I don't know. It's very confusing. Porthos has to be. I Michelangelo. mean, I don't think we can expect like a, a perfect mesh up here. I mean, I think anytime you have four characters, you should. With if swords. Four characters are written <laughs> properly. You should be able to map each of them onto the Ninja Turtles. That's my supposition. And it's a pretty strong argument. Um, so, uh, let's go to Porthos. He's the most extroverted, perhaps, and the, he definitely brings the comic relief. Uh, he likes the ladies, and he loves to tell a tall tale and sing a song. Uh, Brian, what do we think about Porthos? Oliver Platt's Porthos in this movie is one of my favorite characters in film history. Um, I have requoted him on, or, or purposefully misquoted him so many times in the last 20 years, it's insane. Like, I'll be at work and be like, this pen was a gift to me. <laughs> princess of Africa. Like, <laughs> the queen of America. Oh, I beg to differ. We're on quite intimate terms unless you can prove otherwise. As, so, yeah, <laughs> I, I love Oliver Platt anyway, but I, the, re, the, the beginning of my Oliver Platt love was this movie. And uh, Ryan, what do we think about Porthos? He's the best. He's Porthos the pirate. What, what's not to love? Told you I was famous. I remember that as a kid, and I definitely did that at the pool of like, ah, it's Porthos the pirate, and like just jump in the pool. Like, no, no contest. Not only is, I love Porthos as the character, but Oliver Platt just seems like he's having so much fun in that role. The entire just movie. Like, oh, the entire movie. God, I love my work. I think more bad guys should take a note from these two guys. While they seem like pushovers, I mean, they, they don't get beat up. I mean, they're going to get defeated just as quickly. I mean, so like if Iron Man is coming your way, you should probably just jump overboard right now. I mean, it's that's where it's going to go anyway. The wine was excellent. The cheese was delicious. Remind me to leave the Cardinal a note. <laughs> right. For a chase, something red. Next time you drive. Let's go with our fourth musketeer, 2B. What do we think about uh, D'Artagnan? He's young and fiery, uh, arrogant, I would even say, uh, but uh, certainly a man of principle and driven to become a musketeer. Uh, Brian, what do we think about D'Artagnan? I'm not throwing anybody under the bus for this movie because I love it too much, but man, I, it really is about the three in this one for me. I mean, he plays the part, I think, how it was written. I have seen... I think four different D'Artagnans over the years in terms of, of main productions. You know, it's it's 
D'Artagnan in an Americanized Three Musketeers movie. Okay. Ryan, uh, is he our protagonist? Because he got nominated for Raspberry for uh, Worst Supporting Actor, but is he? he's our protagonist in my mind. Is he? I've always thought of him that way, and uh, my feeling on D'Artagnan is just, you know, just God bless this beautiful idiot. He's <laughs> he's just running around oh, getting himself in all kinds of trouble. I mean, he's oh, very much honey. like... He to me, he's Luke Skywalker. If he never had an aunt and uncle to rein him in early on, just be like, just stop, dude. Like, he just you. <laughs> slow down. Like, you got a sword and you got a lot of chutzpah. Like, just just chill out. I like it even when he's completely lost, or like I should say, he's got the lower hand, and like you know, they're like saying, "It's like I'll give you your sword back if you tell me where the musketeers are." I was like, "Yeah, well, if you give me my sword back, I'm gonna cut your heart out." So, hmm. I for me the the where did you read that? Where did you where did you read that to think that's how people talk? <laughs> <laughs> For me, the the prime moment is when Charlie Sheen's Aramis lands on him from the window. The face he makes when he pushes Charlie Sheen off of just like utter disgust. <laughs> it's just a, such a great visceral moment of just like, <laughs> um, you know, yeah. oh, you broke my fall beautifully, and he's <laughs> and he's like, well, you fell on me. He's like, yes, and I apologized for it, and oh, it's great. So, have you guys taken a good look at the poster of this movie by chance? It's oh, yeah. uh, it's, it's 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 interesting how they put Kiefer Sutherland's character front and center. And again, to me, D'Artagnan's the protagonist. And then even further more curious is that when you look at the billing, when the credits roll at the end of the movie, Charlie Sheen is first billed. Is, is anybody else finding this whole arrangement of uh, the, the poster a little bit odd? I would say that uh, D'Artagnan's still taking his cues from Kiefer, who by and large is the leader of the three. So I, I would say that, that having Kiefer, Kiefer be the face of the the poster isn't such a weird thing. He's sort of the the front of the flying V, if you will. Sheen was probably the most famous, like, he probably got paid the most for this movie. So I, I guess I get that in terms of the top build. He definitely probably has the biggest ego out of anybody. Well, yeah, um, but I mean, he has tiger blood. <laughs> So I don't know. I, I think I think all of the all of the different quirks you're seeing here are probably fairly easily explained. Okay. Okay, that's fair. I think the the version of the VHS or DVD we had is the one where it's just the four of them already in their tunics crossing swords with mm. like the French countryside See, in the background. I thank the cover for ruining everything. No, I'm just saying, like, for me, I, I see the poster and I'm like, yep, that's what the poster looked like. But my image, when I just think of, like, the cover of the movie, the DVD case or whatever, is a different image than that one. If if any of our listeners are graphic designers in Hollywood and can explain to me why the DVD cover is never seemingly the actual poster of the movie and why those two things don't align, it eats at me. I still, to this day, don't understand. But uh, tell me why. They're just setting you up for a future steelbook cover that disappoints you even more. But I mean, speaking of design elements of the movie, I will say that I love the costumes in this movie just yep. throughout. Like every every time I watch it, I notice cool new details of the costuming that I enjoy. The fact that like a cardinal is wearing full plate armor just around and um, I have a, a weird soft spot. I don't know if you guys feel this way as well. But when you have the riding boots where the top of the boot is folded over. Oh, yeah. I love that. I don't know why, but it's just a thing. Captain America and the Three Musketeers. Halloween costume idea for you, Ryan. You get, like, the shoulder sticks, like, off to the side. And, like, the, you, like, make two prosthetic heads 
on either of your shoulders and then you have like a three-headed tunic so that you are all three musketeers in one person so I've, being... I've never i've never had the courage to do the three musketeers as a halloween costume because my overriding fear is that i'll put on the tunic and i'll it'll look dumb and i can't i can't <laughs> risk putting on that all-important tunic and feeling like a dummy um i've done i've been zorro uh, that's a swashbuckler i'm comfortable uh, pretending I've been man in the iron mask, but a musketeer is, is it's, it's a little too sacred, I think. Okay. I think you could pull it off. I'm just saying. Also, it's weird. Okay. It's weird that like the word musketeer literally means the part of the army that holds the muskets. Yeah, it and does. Yet, it does. And I, yet I, these are all swordsmen and never, never a musket is fired from any one of them. It needed to be said. And thank you. There's a lot of pistol dealing. So uh, how familiar are you guys with like the original novel published by Alexander Dumas? I, I was going to say, I've only read about the novel in preparation for this week. So no, if you have read it, enlighten us on some of the differences. I mean, the differences are vast because essentially the novel was published as a series of, it was a serialized thing. So it was essentially like half comic book, except it was just you know, words instead of images and like soap opera. It was very soap opera-y. And so I think to its benefit, um, Russell, I know you've talked about like when you have a bad novel, it's hard to make a good movie. But in this instance, you have what isn't necessarily a novel, but a story that was developed over time. And so Alexander Dumas could, could retcon things. He could clarify things and it didn't all have to come out at once. And he was getting feedback the whole time. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so I think when you're seeing a lot of the, deep, deep connections between these characters, you know, D'Artagnan's father being a musketeer who maybe or may or may not have known the original three, Aramis being a student of Richelieu's, Countess de Winter being married to Athos, like all that, all that kind of structural stuff, I think comes about because it was done as a soap opera originally. So do you feel like they took the right parts out of this and made a pretty good faithful version or i should say a wisely adapted version of it or do you feel like uh, the books have something in it that you wish that they had brought into this movie the books are casually way more violent than this like the way d'artagnan fights and, and treats the violence that occurs in some of the early scenes it's clear that he's still kind of a young kid who's not quite ready for like the life of an adult warrior uh, whereas in the book, I feel like I remember he stabs a guy because he made a bad omelet. And, you know, I've looked into like <laughs> food stuff. And in France, I think that actually is a pretty big deal to screw up an omelet. But like, I don't think you stab a man for it. Um, How dare you? <laughs> and, it, and like the book is the book is much more languidly paced. I think D'Artagnan and the Countess de Winter have an affair for months before he ever realizes that like something is off and she might be Athos's ex-wife. Like, I was thinking yeah. he put that together pretty quickly. Well, I'll tell you guys this. Uh, if you have the chance, uh, British Broadcasting did a Three Musketeers series because, again, not French. But uh, it was actually excellent and they are a little truer to certain points in the book, uh, especially that they have a ongoing affair that I don't even think they realize that piece until like the end of season two. The interesting thing is that the book was written in, or it was, you know, the, the series of, of pieces that were eventually collected in a novel was written in the mid 1800s, 1844. So it was being written after the French revolution. And this is all taking place before the French revolution. And so it, it it's, it, you know, I think a lot of what he was writing was colored by the fact that there's an impending revolution that's going to happen 
no matter what any of the characters in the film do. And I think that's much more palpable in the, in the sequel to this, the man in the iron mask. And it's interesting that he chose to weave in actual historical figures. Like there really was King Louis the 13th. Like that's a real person. His wife really was Anne of Austria. They really did have Cardinal Richelieu. Um, There really was a person that D'Artagnan is based off of. And the crazy thing to me is that I think Cardinal Richelieu in particular well, it's funny that like the end of the movie is like everything's great and Louis the Thirteenth did it and everything's gonna be fine and you know that like it's Louis the Thirteenth's son who gets overthrown. You know, it's like his immediate successors show up and in in inside a revolution. Um, so things were not fine. Then only because D'Artagnan knocked up the queen. Right. Erroneous. Which is like which is like also <laughs> the, this movie ends with like the king and queen being like so crazy in love and then the next movie in the not quite a sequel, but really a sequel is like, oh yeah, he, the Queen and D'Artagnan started getting it on very soon after. Um, but well, Cardinal the... Richelieu was a real person and was a person who very much fought against the power of the nobility. And so like, from a modern perspective, he was doing the sort of stuff that we would probably be on board with because none of us would probably be kings and queens or even counts and dukes and whatever. I'd so be like, a duke. Probably, yeah, I'd be uh, a duke. Well, if you'd be a duke, then you <laughs> you would be against Cardinal Richelieu. But I feel like us peasants here on the ground would be like, thank you, Cardinal Richelieu, for pointing out that this feudal system is kind of absurd. Uh, <laughs> I'd, I'd want to be a count. What about a viscount? Okay. You can count on me waiting for you in the parking lot. <laughs> So it's interesting here. Uh, we were talking about Charlie Sheen. He actually goes out for Kiefer Sutherland's part. Uh, he goes out to play Athos. And uh, in the end, he ends up getting Aramis. And uh, it's just kind of an interesting, you go out for one part, you get the other part. I can't imagine him playing that part at all. Can you? The the darker role where he's harboring this on him? No, that wouldn't, no, that wouldn't have been a, a good move. I, I think the casting folks got it right on that. And uh, just to, to double down on the joke about D'Artagnan uh, knocking up the queen, uh, Gabrielle, Gabrielle Anwar was actually pregnant during that movie. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> he, made short, he made short work of it. It was historically accurate. Uh, um, Brad Pitt and Stephen Dorff also turned down the role of D'Artagnan. Brad Pitt instead goes on to make True Romance in California with a K. And Brad Dorff goes on to make Judgment Night with a different Sheen brother with Milugo Estevez uh, in 1993. So Stephen Dorff, if you'll recall, back from our Power of One episode, was the lead actor from that as well. So... Um, Kind of a fun, everything connects in movies. That's how that's how the world works. It's all connected, like a circle. Brad Pitt, yes. Stephen Dorff, no. For that part. I think they could do it. Either one of them. I have, I have too much uh, Deacon Frost in my head from yeah. Stephen Dorff to see him as, as D'Artagnan. Winona Ryder is also considered for the role of Countess de Winter. I like the gravitas that Rebecca de Mornay brings to the character. That I don't know that Winona Ryder at that stage would have been able to successfully pull off she would have been a different kind of deadly she'd be the delicate flower deadly not the strong seductive deadly yeah i think they got this one right as well and then fun casting note uh paul mcgann is doing not one but two different roles ryan tell people who gerard and Yusik are um so gerard is the brother of a never seen but only mentioned um, woman from this. Listen, I, I love this movie. Um, doesn't hold up the, 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 the parts of it that don't necessarily work 
don't work in some very specific me too kind of ways. Um, hashtag me too kind of ways. So Gerard is, I think the biggest French caricature that this movie has to offer um, in the, not the opening scene, which is a scene of just telling you Cardinal Richelieu's the bad guy, but the scene after that, where D'Artagnan and Gerard are sword fighting in the countryside. It's very beautiful. The music swells. Uh, but you quickly find out that these are not two friends fencing just for fun to practice their skills. But instead, Gerard is attempting to kill D'Artagnan for supposedly despoiling his sister's honor that she forfeited to him because she found out that he was leaving for Paris. She's leaving. I'm leaving for Paris. She wanted to give me something to remember her by. Liar! And, um, That's a good impression. Yeah, no, it, it is. The number of times my mom had to be point. driving down the highway and just have me go D'Artagnan in the in the <laughs> man. He's got <laughs> that. Yeah. I love the Gerard's character in this man. He cracks my me up. My brothers will avenge me I, so I, soon. I I love it when he's like getting away. He's like, give your sister my regards. Yeah, already, and um, we we think that Gerard is quickly dispatched when he is not able to. Uh, pull off the very carefully edited stunt work of running over a extremely wide log <laughs> to jump back on his horse, um, which I, I, you know, I didn't really notice until watching it this time through to be on the show of like, oh yeah, it's very clear where the edits are so that you cannot see the face of the person who's actually performing this horse stunt right now. It is neither Paul McGann nor uh, Chris O'Donnell. But then um, he also plays Jusak, a much a, a less meaty role, I will say, but one of the Cardinal's guards who in one of my favorite exchanges of the movie attempts to arrest the same people twice in a day who only a fool, only a fool would do that. Yes. And... Is it weird that on this last rewatch that I did for this podcast, uh, I kept thinking, how is that log still there? That's like a main road. Yeah. <laughs> like you're not going to be able to get a wagon through there or anything. If that's what you have to do every time you ride through, I was like, someone's got to remove that. Yeah. I don't know. Pen dots not always on their game. So, <laughs> uh, so uh, plot point I got to bring up here though. Uh, so D'Artagnan he's on his way to try and intercept uh, the message before it gets there. Uh, he passes out on the side of the road, and uh, so Rebecca, Rebecca de Mornay's character, Countess de Winter, comes up, and she, uh, you know she's like, "He's hot. Put him in my carriage." And um, <laughs> yeah, I, that's pretty funny on its own. Uh, he wakes up, and so I now have a two-part. I have, I have it's it's an A B kind of situation. What's worse, D'Artagnan situation or Marty McFly situation? A, you're knocked out, and your young version of your mom has played uh, played by a hot Lee Thompson wakes you up in your purple underwear. Or B, you faint, and a hot older woman played by Rebecca De Mornay has undressed you, but is is your friend's supposedly dead wife, and and this is the kicker, she plans to kill you. Brian? B. B, B, B. A mashing B. You could be dead at the end of this, but Ryan. That's okay. Mashing B. Uh, yeah, D'Artagnan situation. Totally. Okay. Because, I mean, because, again, D'Artagnan is is our beautiful idiot. And he's just, he's so dumb. He just doesn't know any. He wakes up saying what his secret mission is. That is true. Barney yeah. McFly at least knows this woman yeah, is his yeah. mother. <laughs> and, he does. and that he's got to keep his cool as much as possible. Whereas D'Artagnan is like waking up to details of a secret mission. Oh, what did I just say? Where am I? Who are you? <laughs> that is one of those things from the book that I was kind of sitting there wondering. And by the way, Disney made this movie. We haven't mentioned that this entire time. So they've had to disney everything. But I could easily see like chilling out with this lady for a month. 
like him enjoying himself, to be honest with you, a fair bit before seeing the mark and being like, oh, is that a, oh, uh, okay, yep, okay, that adds up, that's a problem. But uh, in this in this case, you're right. He uh, he looks like uh, quite an idiot because he like spills the beans right away. He wakes up. He's like, "I've got to save the king." But he's our beautiful idiot, and we love him. That's we have true. To take care of. That's why do you think the three musketeers want to take care of this dumb puppy they found it, <laughs> running it, around the streets of Paris, causing a causing a ruckus? It's a it's an oh honey situation all <laughs> yeah, the time. It's, it's a, I mean, like, I feel like oh, the, oh honey. I feel like our three main musketeers are just saying, bless your heart to D'Artagnan this whole time. Oh, bless his heart. (laughs) Bless his heart. He thinks he's going to save the king. So what do we think about director Stephen Herrick here in The Three Musketeers, or as a director in general? Because he has actually made a lot of movies I'm a fan of. It's true. Uh, Mr. Holland's Opus is one of my favorites. And Mighty Ducks, for that matter. I'll run through it real quick. Critters in 86. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure in 89. Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead in 91. The Mighty Ducks in 92. He's on fire before he gets to this movie. He does this movie in 93. Mr. Holland's Opus in 95. I like the live version of 101 Dalmatians in 96. And then he has a misstep with Holy Man in 98. And then I actually am a fan. Maybe it's just because it's a Pittsburgh movie, but Rockstar with Mark Wahlberg in 2001. Before his career seemingly takes a downturn in uh, Life or Something Like It in 2002. And Man in the House with Tommy Lee Jones in 2005. And then he goes into TV. Then, like, it's gone. Yeah, he is. It's strange. But, I mean, there's a lot of movies I really like in here. Like, he gets campy and funny and fun really well with, like, Critters, Bill and Ted's. Don't, I mean, he he, uh, he hits a lot of the tones I like. Uh, I don't know. Ryan, what do, you, what do you think about Stephen Herrick as a director? I don't have a strong opinion of him as a director. You know, this movie bore its way into my brain before I was an advanced enough movie watcher to really appreciate the role of a director and and directorial style and the choices that are made by directors to, to bring these films to life. And so I I have to say that I'm um, pleasantly neutral, but you know, this is still one of my, my favorite movies, even if the rest of his uh, oeuvre is is somewhat lost on me. Uh, I think it's funny that we brought up MacGyver earlier with the different hairstyles because this director has been like outwardly pushing MacGyver through most of the last 15 years. He did a young MacGyver. Yeah. Yeah, Well, he did a, a a young MacGyver movie and then has been pushing MacGyver revival. Yes. (laughs) So I was just like, which Richard Dean Anderson appreciates. He's not doing much. I hey, started SG one was fun. Is Richard Dean Anderson in new Guyver? That's what I'm going to call it. New Guyver. I like that. Wordplay. I don't know that he's I, in it. I will take a minute to uh, in, to find an answer to that. This is good podcasting. Watch while Brian checks this out. I'm going to give my thoughts on Stephen Herrick. I think he's a lot of fun because he puts that in emphasis on a romp. And if the, I have to compare this movie to another movie, which, by the way, I think Ryan probably will like this movie because it's got plenty of swashbuckling in it. Uh, I'm thinking this movie's got a tone of Pirates of the Caribbean. Yes, no. I mean, which one? There have been 16, 17 of those? It's true, one? like the first and the still the best. <laughs> um, yeah, I I had the the fight scene in the blacksmith shop between drunk Johnny Depp and Orlando Bloom in my honorable mentions of, of really good sword fights in film. So I would say it definitely, that to me is like the, the next decade's version of this movie. It right? is. I mean, this movie doesn't have a Jack Sparrow in it, which, I mean... That's, Porthos is, is close. That's true. He does. Uh, he. Do, I love like when he hits the karate guy on like the pirate ship, and then we do have a pirate ship. Yeah. I also might add. <laughs> I mean, Porthos also. I mean, they they all drink a lot in the movie. 
They do, which is on like again back to the Disney thing. Pirates of the Caribbean. They drink, is all... they smoke, they kill people. Like <laughs> they go wenching, which is not a term I'm super comfortable with, but yes. that's what they call it. That's what they said. I mean, <laughs> I don't think there are any other more delicate terms to put it. I mean, they're going out and getting some prostitutes. So it kind of yeah, I know. It's like gee, I wonder why. Hey, hey, legal barmaids. <laughs> yeah, you have to wonder of like why are all these women so quickly willing to cavort with these uh, Lotharios, and I think that might have been because there was an exchange of funds at some point in that evening. But it's also very, very France. <laughs> yeah. I love that D'Artagnan as a Gascon. Okay, so um, a thing that has always bothered me about this movie is, you know, Chris O'Donnell is doing his best Kevin Costner in Robin Hood accent, and um, when he introduces himself to Constance, he's like, I'm D'Artagnan. And she goes as if he's just given her useful information. She says, oh, a Gascon? As if, like, of course you're from Gascony. Your name's D'Artagnan. As everyone knows, like, that you're, you know, D'Artagnan, yeah, the jit of Gascony. Can, <laughs> can I tell by your accent that you're actually from this area of the country? Yeah. <laughs> Clearly, your Gascon accent and that you're speaking are are the Gascon dialect, you know, and inundated with Basque culture and, and trappings. I can tell where you're from. Brian, Richard Dean Anderson and MacGyver, the new Giver? Negative. No. Not, not new Giver. In fact, he has not been in anything uh, since 2013 where he played himself in Don't Trust the Bitch in Apartment 23. Wow, that's a classic. Uh, okay. um uh, this movie has uh one of the things that we were going back to the director of stephen herrick he has a lot of these beautiful inspiring opening shots to the scenes i won't say that they're great transitions because he doesn't end them as well as he opens them but the opening shots for his scenes really fully capture the beauty of the locations you've got like this awesome like stormy night with a dungeon this awesome perspective like these lush woods We've got these long shots of these horse ridings through the clearing with the sun shining behind them. You've got these uh, grassy coastline as they lead up to the sacrifice, well, not sacrifice, but the execution scene. This is a pretty movie, and I think he does it continually throughout there. It takes full advantage of their locations, much of which is shot in Austria, but also parts of it are shot in Cornwall, UK. I kept saying, like, man, that's a nice opening to the scene. I mean, considering if this movie was made today by Disney, it would just be parts of Georgia that were supposed to look like Paris or the French countryside. <laughs> it was really refreshing because I had never looked up where it was actually filmed. And it was really refreshing to look it up and see that like, oh, they actually went to Europe. That's nice. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't completely Americanized. Right. Well, Herrick was saying that in order to do this right, you have to get the scale of like these palaces and these castles and you have to get the feel of the place that they're in. And I mean, I think it pays dividends. The ancient nature of these towers uh, in these castles and stuff, it's great. I mean, there's one like where there's cannons are shooting from a fortified tower. Uh, that's a real place. And uh, again, that, that one's in Austria. And it's just it's amazing. And just I don't know. It to me, I love that part of history, and it's exciting to see all that stuff. So I mean, and also the dungeon scene where like they had like an old mine that was flooded in the early 1900s due to an underground water source that was uh, used by Nazis during the Second World War. That site's actually now open to the public, by the way. But there's an underground lake uh, down there, and so they they put their prison cells down there, and then the whole scene like where the cardinals like like in this like underground river like is he's trying to get away in the last scene. 
or the near the end of the movie. That grit, that history, that that's there. I don't know. For me, that helped me out a lot, and I really appreciate that they did that. I think there's an authenticity to the scale and the depth of everything that that happens when you film in actual locations. You know, I think about the fact that Phantom Menace came out in this same decade, you know, like six years later, we have Phantom Menace. And Phantom Menace also filmed partly on location at, you know, palaces in Italy and stuff like that for some of the Naboo sequences. But because of the overwhelming use of green screen and CGI that maybe wasn't quite up to the task or maybe hasn't held up as well as one might hope, like there's a fakiness to it and like the deep shots you can't ever trust that you're actually looking down a hallway because you think you might just be looking at a green screen repetition of part of a hallway. Whereas this movie, it never, never looks like they're trying to fudge it with a matte painting or, um, you know, make a place look bigger or smaller than it actually was. Yeah, absolutely. And while you're on the Star Wars thing, you, you, you alluded to it earlier. Does someone want to share the uh, Empire Strikes Back reference here? So, so, you know, when you have a good swashbuckle, uh, the, which I guess is the verb for a playful sword fight. Yeah. D- there should be at least one flip and laugh moment. And D'Artagnan at one point flips off a banister. Ha ha. And uh, Colonel Rochefort says, impressive. And uh, that is a that is a direct call out to Luke flipping around with his lightsaber and Darth Vader saying that it was impressive. And also he's wearing all black like Vader. So even more appropriate. It's true. Swashbuckle is to engage in a daring and romantic adventure with ostentatious bravado and flamboyance. Wow. I've been swashbuckling wrong. I haven't been putting enough flamboyance into it. I've got to, I've got to work on my stage act on my, on when I'm fencing in the future. So I, I hope to achieve swashbuckling levels. And what's interesting is that the word fencing comes from the idea of defense. So you're defending yourself with a sword, but none of these people carry shields because we'd evolved past, including shields and sword fighting, which like, it just seems like if any one dude just wore some armor or a shield, you wouldn't be as fast as everybody, but how are they going to get those little swords through anything? Have you ever seen Rob Roy? <laughs> I, so I had never seen Rob Roy and I, it, I only found out about it when I came across the, um, you know, I was looking at some listicles of like best sword fights in movie history, and I watched that one scene. But and now I really want oh, to okay. watch the movie. Um, <laughs> that's yeah, that is brutal. Yes. <laughs> but then I also think about like I think about Game of Thrones again, where you know the Bravosi water dancers are much more like fencers in the swashbuckling style than the Westerosi knights who are in clad armor with long swords and broadswords. And every time I think about one of the water dancers fighting one of the knights, the water dancers always win. So maybe maybe I'm just crazy. And you know, it really, if you're if you're quick and you're precise, armor and a bigger sword doesn't make as much of a difference as I I think in my head it might. So we we went through the four main musketeer characters, but can we can we take a moment to pour one out for Tim Curry? Oh, oh good yeah. call. Yeah. So so what do we think about Cardinal Regilu? I mean, he's just dripping with contempt and scorn for everyone around him and i love him so much he's a big part of why i love this movie uh yeah i mean they couldn't have there has not been a better cardinal cardinal richelieu uh the only other person who i've said who i think has played a good that sort of figure is um i'm not gonna blank on his name uh the gentleman who played grant in jurassic park uh plays uh, nope no Sam Neill. Um, Sam Neill. Sam Neill. There you go. Uh, Sam Elliott is, is yeah. Never mind. Our, one of our favorite podcasting segments. Brian tries to guess movie actors' names. Go on. Okay. 
No, it's it's funny just because every now and then I'll try to come up with an actor's name and I'm like, yep, I'm not going to get this now. Uh, But anyway, he plays uh, in The Tudors and he's an evil cardinal ish person in that. I don't think I like that. I like I like I like Alan Grant being a good guy. I don't I don't want him to be a bad guy. He he Horizon. Yeah, he uh, he did a fantastic job uh, as the uh, Archbishop of Canterbury. Okay, okay. So you're saying your favorite villains are religious figures to some degree of corruption? Well, no, what I'm saying is the only person I've seen pull off evil religious figure as well as Tim Curry was Sam Neill and Tudors. Okay, you know, Tim Curry does villains so well. I mean, Rocky Horror Picture Show is amazing. And, uh, you know, you got, I, I, maybe I just was the right age for it, but I still love him up at Treasure Island that has him in it. And, uh, you know, Congo is not a good movie, but Correct. I kind of like it because of Tim Curry. Oh, no, Congo, I, I, I'll back you with Congo. You mentioned earlier, Ryan, that you're a fan of the wardrobe on this, in particular the tunics, but what are some other the other inspired wardrobe pieces we see here? Again, watching this as a young person, um, the, the outfits that some of the female characters are put in were interesting to me. Uh, I was very engaged by those. So, I mean, for a movie like this, the swords that people are wearing are like part of their costume, and so I always was really interested to see like that each character kind of had their own sword, and um, I like that the characters, even though they're wearing the uniform of a tunic, they get to have some of their own style with it. Like you could just see Porthos's costume and you could tell that he's a more fun person than Aramis. Right. That is true. Yeah. He has like a laid back nature to him. And but he's shows. got like sashes and he's got like headscarves and he's got, and he's got, everything's got a story and he's just got a swagger to him. So I like that both, and I think this also comes across in the way that each of these characters fights. D'Artagnan fights like a, a young person with some skill who's really eager to prove himself. Athos fights like kind of the world-weary warrior who's just like, all right, let's get this done. Aramis fights like the kind of guy who's like, I don't feel great about this, but I am better than you, so I'm going to stab you. And Porthos is just like, woohoo, this is fun. Um, wee, wee, <laughs> wee, 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 wee. And like, and, and, and then even Colonel Rochefort, like his, his style is very like, you know, he's the man in black, but his style as a fighter is also like, he's incredibly vicious. He, he enjoys besting others. You can tell. And, and I like that for me, the characters are fully formed in that the way they present themselves, even if you just saw a still image and the way that they talk and they move and they fight are all part of their character and part of the piece of what makes the, each of them interesting to watch on screen. Yes, and speaking again to Rockford's cutting of the candles, I remember being a kid, again with my Three Musketeers sword, intentionally missing, but getting as close as possible. I did not hit the candles, but, uh, you know, swinging in front of some candles. How many dinner settings did you ruin? Uh, Yeah, so, I mean, uh, I actually didn't ruin it because I was conservative enough to keep it away from it because I didn't actually want to cut it, but I definitely remember that scene of like, oh, he cut all three candles and they're still lit, and then he knocks them over one at a time. That's pretty cool to eight-year-old me. (laughs) And and when I was in college, I studied abroad in Costa Rica, and I got a machete because, like, a machete is a thing you buy at the Costa Rican hardware store because it's a legitimate, like, lawn care device. Um, in in the tropics. And so I had my machete, I brought it home, and I lived in an apartment in Santa Cruz, California that had a lemon tree in the yard. And so what we would do, and I've never put this together, Russell, until you mentioned this, but I think it comes from this movie, is when we were making a gin and tonic, I would try to cut a lemon 
half off the tree with the machete. But to be clear, this is a person who's actively drinking multiple gin and tonics, pulling out a machete and trying to cut fruit off of a tree. Like it wasn't my best idea. And I only ever pulled it off once, but that one time where there was half a lemon still attached to the tree. It's a good moment for me. All it takes is once. And then you say, I can do that. You know, I can cut half a lemon off the tree. (laughs) I can do that. And I know because I've done it. Right. I have sabered many bottles of champagne. Just Oh, have you? Yeah. I've never done it. I'm always in a chase. I mean, I'm I'm always in a chase, so it's something red. So, uh, soundtrack, Brian. What do we think about uh, the the score here and what it does for the movie? Well, to turn us back around to another reference we made earlier to Kevin Costner, uh, one of the great romantic pop hits of the '90s, "All for One" and "All for Love," by uh, Brian Adams, Sting, and was it uh, Rod Stewart? Rod Stewart. Yeah. yeah so. I mean, it's the first thing in the credits before they even start showing the, the like director and actors. It's a, it's a it's a uh, abrupt reminder that this is 1993. Personally, I, I, do you guys like this song? No. Thank you. Okay. Uh, yeah. This, this this doesn't do it for me. And I found myself sitting there, I was like, yeah, I expect this from you, Brian Adams and Rod Stewart. I know that you've got you know a dark period of your career too. Like it's got some okay stuff in it, but then there's some stuff I don't care for. But it's like Sting. Come on, I expect better than this from you. Yeah, it's no, it's no fields of gold. But what do you think about the instrumental scores? Because I had a lot of fun with these. I thought that they elevated the chase scenes. Uh, they just uh, when they like on the carriage and they're like dashing through the woods and lighting it on fire and sending it back into like a full blown explosion, uh, which would be like the largest explosion in history at that point, probably. <laughs> um, in Europe, I'm sure that I'm sure someone in Asia had figured out a better and more efficient way to make a big explosion. Yeah, I mean, by by today's standards, you need something like that in 1993 to make the like audiences go, "Whoa, that was cool!" Like, explosions or whatever. But like, if you actually put that in like the 1600s France, they'd be like, "Oh my God, it's Pompeii all over again." So. I felt that the the score was in the action sequences is very serviceable. Like it does the job of letting me know we're in an action sequence. For me, I much prefer the softer horn moments where it's like the horses are riding across a field and it's the dun, 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 dun. like, I like those moments where it's a little quieter and a little bit more. The, the score is doing the work because there's nothing else happening more or less. I like those for me. That's where it, it, it works better than just the straight action sequences. All right, guys, I think it's time to get into look for this. Uh, any kind of fun moments that you saw in the movie that you want to tell people about that we haven't covered already. Ryan, you want to go first? For me, it's not so much a look for this as a listen for this. The The best parts of this movie are the vocal performances of the actors and these line reads that are just ridiculous, over the top, so much fun. So like whenever somebody accidentally bumps into me, I'm very, I very quickly want to go to Oliver Platt, excuse me. And, um, <laughs> and anytime somebody is giving me a hard time and, and, suggesting alternatives i don't want uh it's always tempting to kick an ottoman and go that can be arranged man that was a good yeah (laughs) just like just listen i think this movie is so tonal in its its dialogue and vocal performances that it's a a listen for this just listen to the dialogue bathe yourself in the wonderfulness of of these actors just chewing scenery left and right and uh, have fun with it that can be arranged is a really good moment uh brian i know uh brian Uh, Look for this. Mine, 
mine is also a listen for this and it's it's some of the lines that you hear the main three give for instance charlie sheen uses a colloquialism in the carriage that isn't used for another 200 years where he says gentlemen end of the line that's that's a line from <laughs> trains and, and it's it, yeah. we all just listen right over top of it but this is like there aren't trains yet this is <laughs> this is a carriage <laughs> it's, it's so it's just it, it's just little things like that that crack me up on this and it takes you know multiple watchings to catch on but i was thinking about it when i was watching it this time and i was like man that's a train saying that's a western <laughs> thing yeah um yeah. so for me uh we've talked about this being disney and disney doing all kinds of things that they would never do but when lady countess uh de winter or lady sabine jumps off of the cliff she becomes the first character in walt disney history to commit suicide so wow yeah dark moment for disney uh this movie does all kinds of things that i doubt disney would do today so i have one follow-up and it's something i'm sure brian is well aware of but it's so for me it's so built into just my memory of the movie i don't even think about it it's the fact that multiple times throughout the film watch for porthos and aramis to high five with their swords okay yeah Oh yeah, just, that one's always right? fun. Because yeah, you know it. You know it. Because I was they, trying to hit Rochefort. They ting. just do this little ting, and they do it multiple times throughout the movie. It's like it's clearly. I imagine it's a thing that those two actors talked about doing, and maybe didn't even like get direction to do it, and then it just got built into the the script and the filming. And it's a really fun little note of just it shows how comfortable and familiar these two characters are with each other. Also, at a time period, the weapon that Porthos throws that strangles the guy and like hits him in the, the face. The bolos? Yeah, the bolos. Uh, that's not accurate to this time. It's much older than this movie. And so, unless he got like a relic on his mythical travels that he tells tall tales about, uh, also not in this time period. But who's counting? These bolos were a gift to me from the premiere of Chile. I like it. <laughs> uh, well, I'd say what the bolos were a South American thing. Oh, were they? I just made that up. Yeah. Well, no, the the uh, the time period that Russ is talking about was before Three Musketeers. So if he really was a pirate and had knowledge of those waters, it very well could have been something <gasps> picked up along the way. Yeah, maybe Porthos just introduced it, Russell. I, I, Did you I, think about that? Maybe he's an innovator. I said maybe he picked him up on his travels. And he's like the Silicon Valley of 1600s France, he's disrupting the musketeer industry. I feel like I covered my hands uh, on this one. Okay. Um, <laughs> the pistol knife. Ooh, I like this. And then one last thing I got to call out on a look for this thing. Uh, it, it is representational of the time. Uh, it, they're, the clothing from the women back then were very um, chesty. A lot of cleavage. Uh, this movie sports a ton of cleavage for a disney movie like they are really shoving it in your face and there's even this like over the shoulder shot when uh, chris o'donnell wakes up after uh, lady de winter picks him up looking right down rebecca de mornay's like uh I, I, again i'm not like perving out here it's it's right up in your face so really what they were they were really shoving it in a dress not in your face well all right anyway uh but i mean you know rule rule of thirds the director chose how to frame these shots and the shots are framed <laughs> in a very specific way it's true it's true and so that over the shot uh that over the shoulder shot i was just like wow that's kind of like blatant wow they're really holding it there it's like looking at my watch it's like holy crap they really want you to see this so i anyway. would say and i would say my favorite moment of Kiefer sutherland's acting is 
when he tell when he makes D'Artagnan go, Kiefer Sutherland threatens to kill most of his comrades throughout the course of this film. Um, and the moment where he makes <laughs> D'Artagnan ride on to Calais to, mm-hmm. to get uh, to intercept the spy, there's a moment, and we never find out how Athos survives this encounter that D'Artagnan is presumably leaving him to die at. Yeah. There's a moment where you can tell he regrets his decision. And it's really, it's like a great moment of facial acting where he's just like, Oh, oh, what the hell? Ah, why did I do this? And where did the other two guys go at that point? They just split up to try to, you know, separate the Cardinal's men. But I guess they must have looped around and flanked him and, and saved him because they're all back together on the ship later. But I want to see that scene personally. But I, I actually so I have a different take on this. I think that Charlie Sheen and Oliver Platt just got away because they were on board the ship. Athos was late. Oh, you're right. He, he rides in to stop her from running away. He wasn't there already, so I think he somehow escaped it himself. So Athos is basically the Punisher at this point. Yeah. Like he just can't be stopped. All right. All right. I buy it. And uh, so how does this movie affect you? Let's go with you, Ryan. It gets me like excited and amped up, like I want to go have an adventure. Uh, you know, I think swashbuckling is probably uh, most charitably a subgenre of like an action-adventure film with with some heavy comedic elements. And it does that for me. Like it makes me want to put myself in a situation where I eagerly leap without looking. Just with where my life's been lately, uh, there's been more trepidation and more cautious steps than than maybe previous points in my life. So watching this movie was like a really fun affirmation of like, actually, you can just you can just give it a shot and throw yourself into a situation that that may not end well, but like, you know, haha, adventure, let's go and um. For me, it has that effect on me where it like encourages me to to not overthink things and to just have fun with it, even if it's uh, literally death-defying circumstances. Impressive. <laughs> Brian. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely one of those movies that just makes me lighthearted anytime. And it's one of those ones where you see it on TV and you're just like, oh, this. And then you just stop. And you know, whether you have time or not, you got to watch at least a little bit. There's always that one more scene where you're like, Oh, this is the part where this happens. I've got to watch that. And, uh, you know, most of them are, uh, expounded with some line that you're just like, Oh, this is a good one. Yeah. There's a lot of good. It, it would be very hard for me to pick out my favorite line from this movie. Just, uh, or even like oh, yeah. quick pithy exchange. Like, Oh, he's a feisty fellow. Feisty. Well, on that right. note, on that note, we're about to have to do just that and a few other things. Are you guys ready to hand out some awards? Ryan, are you ready? If I must, it's hard for me to pick just one thing to laud this movie for, but if you tell me what superlative I have to give, I will I will do my best. Let's kick it off with MVP. Oliver Platt. Oliver Platt. I love it. It was easy. Yep. It was really easy. Uh, Brian. Same. Like Oliver Platt made this movie. Like He added that spark of wonderful that really just... Like everybody had their part and it was good, but Oliver Platt was. If not for Oliver Platt, I wouldn't know that a queen is no different from a barmaid in the dark, no less versed (laughs) in the subtle art of massage. Massage. (laughs) So my MVP, I'm going to, I might have tipped my hand and you've showed you my cards a little bit, but I'm going to go with Tim Curry on this one as Cardinal Regilu. Uh, I just really love everything he did in this. I love when he's being creepy and coming in and like uh, on various female characters. I like when he's like kind of got the slimy, like I'm really a politician. Like I like how he has no sincerity for God at all. Like he's, he's only in religion as a line of work, as a form of politics. And he's just so good. I just, I mean, down to his oddly shaped goatee, he just, 
it is perfect for him. So I, I'm Tim Curry makes this uh, memorable for me. Oh, he did a great job. Yeah. Best supporting actor, Ryan. I mean, I think I would give it to Tim Curry. Okay. Yeah. Right, I mean, is that allowed? You gave him the MVP, but I yeah. think you know he—he is—he is, he's, a, he is a supporting character, but I, I promoted him to MVP, and that's allowed. Yeah, every, everything's legal here, Brian. Yeah, I man, I I agree with Ryan again, but just for the sake of some some differences here, I'll go ahead and give it to Kiefer Sutherland's brooding Athos. Okay, nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Uh, so my best supporting actor is going to be Rebecca De Mornay. I, I liked her as the Countess de Winter. Uh, we talked about me not wanting to put... Uh, R- Russ is going all bad guy on this one. I guess I am. I guess I am, yeah. He, he's, he's playing the part of Chad. I mean, she she's an, you know she's an evangelist. She talked about how with a flick of her wrist, she could change Cardinal Richelieu's religion. Yeah. That I, was another great line. I, I really like the scene where she still loves him at the end. And he still loves her. And he like goes to say, like, no, 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 don't cut her head off. And then so she... He made the statement of how do you want to die? And I think this is this movie might be a bit weak at plot and character at some point. And I actually felt like she brought some of the uh, strongest acting moments like that. So I'm going to give her best supporting actor. So hidden gem, though, Ryan, I think it might have to be Gabrielle Anwar's Queen Anne of Austria. Yeah, Um, I think she's the character that as I've grown and continue to watch this movie into adulthood she's the character for me that i found that i i didn't think about much when i was a kid but i ended up having a lot of sympathy for and relating to a lot as a uh, a character into adulthood because she's in this really difficult situation where like she doesn't know any of these people and she was forced into this marriage and she clearly has like affection and even love for this king that she's been forced to marry but her king is so freaking awkward that like she has a hard time even getting him to express any mutual reciprocal affection and she's constantly fending off attacks from this Harvey Weinstein-esque uh, Cardinal Richelieu <laughs> and like she's just she comes across as a very quiet and strong and poised person and her esteem as she comports herself throughout the movie has grown in my estimation as i've continued to watch this movie into adulthood also british not austrian <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah uh brian well yeah but her, the character she's playing an austrian in austrian i know movie. i know i know that's what i'm saying but she she goes she goes at it with a british accent so and uh, i and i watched a lot of burn notice and she's one of the main characters on burn notice oh, gosh, no. back back to where i started though like everything in europe just is british so and i'm sure mm-hmm. <laughs> brian uh who's your hidden gem i'm gonna go with something ugly so I like the uh, the the basement troll, nice. uh, the dungeon uh, I want a dungeon master movie for that guy. Uh, well, the reason I bring him up, and this actually has some segue to Oliver Platt as well. Uh, if you notice during this movie, they'd use certain camera angles specifically, but Oliver Platt is a giant person. Um, is he? he is much bigger. Yeah, he's he's six four. What? I want to say like yeah, he's huge. He's he's a a, a large person. This is probably the skinniest so, I've seen him too. In, in one of these – or in a movie like this, a lot of times, like within Bond movies where you always see Bond fighting the main henchman. Uh, yeah. Now, obviously, it's it's not, uh, not something ugly. But I feel like they really felt like they had to match Oliver Platt up with someone as big as he was. So I give the hats off to something ugly in the, in the dungeon that Oliver Platt ends up fighting in order to get to Richelieu's ship to save the king. Baby Ruth? <laughs> See, I, okay, I see the baby roof reference from the Goonies, but for me, the dungeon guy in Three Musketeers is much more akin to the Rancor Keeper in Return of the Jedi. Okay, I like I see that. Too. Yeah. yeah. 
He has there's like some a pathos to that character. Stuff. Yeah. Because like oh, yeah. he doesn't seem like he doesn't. Well, I guess Sloth also has some pathos, but like the the dungeon keeper, he doesn't seem like a bad guy. He's just doing his job, and he's not allowed to go outside. And like it's hard. It's hard to be a dungeon keeper <laughs> in, in France before Bastille Day. I'm gonna go with uh, <laughs> I'm gonna go with Paul McGann here. I just like that he played two roles in particular. But I which lo- role do you prefer? Gerard, man, Gerard really cracks me up in this movie. He is he dials it up to eleven, and he is over the top. He is whiny. He is dislikable. He is comical. Uh, I really like Gerard's character. He was assassinated. Your father was a failure. D'Artagnan. <laughs> it just. The voice was really good on this character. Uh, I just, Paul McGann really made me happy on this one. So that's my hidden gem. Now, if you had to recast somebody, Ryan, who would you recast and who would you put in their shoes? Man, this one I thought about a fair bit. I struggled. I, I don't know that I have a good answer. Can I, I mean, is time travel an option? Like, do I have to pick somebody who's appropriate for the role in 1993? Well, if the Bolos can get into 1600s France, I will allow it. <laughs> oh, this is this is really hard. I feel like you maybe could have recast King Louis um to make that role stand out a little bit more, but I don't I don't know who I would put in Can there. Can you possibly make him any more awkward than he was? I know, that's the problem. This and and you yeah, know Ben Stiller. What oh, we sort of talked about oh. is like the ca- the cast is kind of small and tight. Like this is a surprisingly tight film when it comes to the number of people on screen at any given moment. Yes, yes, it's tight. I mean, like, you could have had fun and maybe made D'Artagnan and Emilio Estevez, so you have, like, Charlie and Emilio, and then, like, make Martin Sheen, Tim Curry. Like, just make it a Estevez family, <laughs> family affair. Yeah. Hmm. But, it, but then you lose I Tim Curry. I Wall Street. And I love that, like, I, lo- I mean, Oliver Platt eventually becomes Martin Sheen's lawyer on the West Wing, but, like, I love that Kristen O'Donnell is so earnestly, you know, he's our beautiful idiot. I don't want to take this movie away from him. Um... So maybe you could, I think, okay. I love how, I love how scenery chewing Michael Wincott is, as Rochefort. I love that every line is as gravelly as gravelly as possible. <sighs> I just, I really don't know. I struggled with this one a lot and I don't think I have a good answer. I might need to hear your guys' answer and I'll chime in if I think of something. All right, Brian recast. Uh, mine came from seeing all the different people who had turned down or had not been cast for parts in this. And I would like to roll the dice and see what young Brad Pitt could have done with the role of D'Artagnan. Okay. Yeah. Maybe a bit of an overcast, but yeah, maybe not at that point in time. Maybe, maybe, maybe it made sense at the time. Um, I mean, this, this is very what's in the box, Brad Pitt. So I don't think Ryan's going to like my answer here, but my hidden, sorry, my, um, my recast is going to be Gabrielle Anmar as Queen Anne. She gets a ton of screen time, but she doesn't necessarily deliver what I want out of this role. I need somebody with... Um, I, she doesn't really seem very likable to me, and um, I feel like I need somebody with a little bit of some comedy in there. And I had a really hard time because I, I usually, when I do the recast, I try and stay pretty tight to the I got to get the right age for the right person at the right time and it's amazing every female actress I kept looking up was either too old or too young and this was a hard time window to try and hit but uh uh, I'm gonna go with Amy Jo Johnson who is the pink ranger from the power rangers that's my nostalgia coming through on this one so interesting interesting yes she's also uh prettier so therefore the nervous guy would be more nervous around her I mean, I feel like you're mm. really splitting hairs at that point. We're talking about two yeah. very attractive people. Yeah, she was really hot. <laughs> <laughs> and also, um, I, I, I don't, I'm not going to claim Burn Notice is a particularly good show, 
but it's you know it's a basic cable it's a usa spy show and she's basically the you know she's basically like black widow from marvel in that show so um her she rose in my esteem in watching that movie and, and seeing her uh her kind of have a lot more to do in a lot more scenes and have a lot more action to, to perform. Okay. I was just going to say, I need to put some more attention to burn notice. Cause this is coming from, from a guy that, yeah, I loved alias and hunted. And basically if there's a spy television show, I'll watch it. So I might need to, to put a little weight toward watching that. Brian. All right. I, I'm, I'm going to do Leonardo DiCaprio as D'Artagnan just to make man in the iron mask that much funnier and, or, <laughs> Uh, Jeff Goldblum as Aramis. Oh, I do like that. I, oh, I, I, okay. I, you can put uh, Jeff Goldblum into most movies, and I like it. So uh. yeah, but imagine him like doing like last rites. Like, oh, these are his uh, <laughs> last rites. <laughs> That's pretty good, man. Um, so I'm gonna go with. Uh, be- oh, sorry, Ryan. Yeah. What is no, your yeah, be- you wanted to move on. I wasn't willing to let that happen yet, but now we can move on. Yeah, we've come <laughs> full circle. What is uh, your best shot of the movie? Uh, well, I think I'll I'll, I'll go back to what you referenced earlier, there's a lot of moments of this movie that I would like to make gifts of. And now that I've rewatched it recently, I might have to just go learn how to make gifts so I can actually make some gifts. Cause I doubt they exist. But for me, it's when the huddle of the four, uh, upon, you know, their second arrest attempt and they spin around and Porthos says there, now we prepare to resist you more on that later because I love that too. Uh, okay. Brian, what is your best shot? Uh, best shot for me is probably going to be the all for one, one for all swords together at the very end. Mm. Just, just the shot of the swords in the air. Inspiring. I like it. I'm going to go with the uh, sad moment, the long shot uh, of the suicide uh, as opposed to an execution moment when Countess de Winter jumps off the cliffs. A, that's an inspiring location. And uh, B, they could have just showed her like walking off the face and, you know, onto like a mat or something like that. But uh, this this again took full advantage of the site. I like the way they cut it. Uh, They showed her walking off the top, but then they also did the long view, particularly as uh, she falls down into the rocks and the tide. So I think cinematography, cinema, cinematographically, cinematographically, whatever the word is, I think you're (laughs) correct. I think Brian and I are just too close to this film. To, to assess it that uh, clinically. That's mm. okay. That's okay. Like I said, I've, I've had a decade between each time I've seen this pretty much. So, uh, so what is your best scene, Ryan? There's a couple of moments in the final battle that I love, and they're mostly Porthos moments, but so I, I, I love when like Porthos sees that D'Artagnan's in trouble. He tells Aramis to hold his, or he tells Athos to hold his sword. And Athos is instantly like, Ooh, I have two swords now. And just keeps fighting with two swords, um, which is a great, like that's a very Ninja Turtles moment to me. And then, um, yep. and then Porthos pulls out a crossbow and shoots the guy that D'Artagnan's fighting while D'Artagnan is hanging from a, a flag, trying to fight one handed while hanging onto a flag. And then just gives him this little, this little salute and then says, come D'Artagnan. And it's like the most Frenchy line. While saving the king. While saving the king. And then for me, there's something so powerfully heartwarming about when uh, Cardinal Richelieu shoots Aramis, spoiler warning, and Porthos sees it from across this giant fight and Porthos just charges to his buddy. And like, there's such a strong affection between these two characters that 
theoretically like shouldn't get along that well you know aramis is a very serious man out of cloth porthos is a very larger than life drunkard lothario but like porthos loves his buddy so much that he's running in between dudes fighting with swords and just shoving them out of the way so that he doesn't have to run around them and i think it's like it's hilarious because you're seeing a guy run between in between swords but he's doing it because he has this really strong, palpable emotional response to seeing his friend in peril. And so it's like, it's funny, it's moving. Um, it, it ends well. And I just, to me, that is the scene in the movie where you really get to see uh, a, a moment that, that is always, always warms the, the cold, dark cockles of my heart. Uh, Brian, what is your best scene? Uh, I'm going to go with a Tim Curry scene here where he and Rochefort are discussing the uh, imminent or the the post-eminent uh, escape of the Musketeers. And he's just released all the birds into the sky. Mm, and yeah. his, his whole line is like, and thanks to our winged friends here, every bounty hunter and cutthroat in France will be waiting for them. All for one and more for me. I love that song. And my best scene is going to be the chase scene uh, where he's uh, D'Artagnan and his rival uh, Gerard are chasing each other early in the movie, again with the giant tree over the horse, and it also ends on the uh, give my regards to your sister. So, <laughs> um, I just I, I told you I love Gerard so much. Uh, he here it comes back again, paying big dividends. It just the movie opens up on such a good chase. So nod to the execution that turns into a, a carriage scene. So different execution scene uh, where they steal the cardinal's carriage because I, I also enjoy that chase scene. So if you had to change one thing, though, what would you change about the movie, Ryan? It's hard because I really like that this movie moves at a very, very strong clip. Like it is it is a go, go, go. Uh, the parts where it slows down. I'm always like, uh, do I really need to watch like D'Artagnan fumble around with Rebecca de Mornay for 10 minutes before he figures out what's going on? But I, I still end up enjoying those scenes and they're over much more quickly than I imagine we're back in the action. So I almost think you could decompress the story a little bit and tell it over a longer period of time. I don't know that you need to make it a series of movies, but I think you could make this a longer movie uh, where you get a little bit more of the backstory for each of the individual characters. But I also worry that if you actually did that, you would end up with a much less exciting romp. I, f I feel like you do have a different movie on your hands at that point if you do that. I really, uh, yeah, I I'm torn because I really want more plot. I really want to see like the classic novel stuff come through. But yeah, I'm with you. I, I I'm torn because it it is just a it's a romp and it's a fun time. And Pirates of the Caribbean doesn't have a ton of plot in it either and a lot of character involvement. So I see the criticism. This is why the critics gave it a 31% on uh, Rotten Tomatoes, but uh, yeah, I don't know. You're, you're... I mean, you, you've, you've mentioned on the show before like how much of a boon we've been given from Marvel Studios for getting the post-credit sequence. Yes. And I think you could do a post-credit sequence here. And I also like, I think if, this is maybe a ridiculous thing to change, but like, am I allowed to get a man in the iron mask movie with these actors instead of the other ones? <laughs> like, is that yeah. too much? Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, I, like a sequel would have, even if it wasn't good, an attempt would have been nice. And I think if this movie had been made today, it would definitely be made as the, the idea of it would be to make it as the first in a series or the first in a franchise. And so I, I guess 
if I could change something, I would change the the studio system of the time that wasn't as focused on creating long term properties that could subsist. Yeah, for franchising. So maybe if I could change this into a franchise, um, yeah, I would I would maybe do that. So I want to Porthos the pirate prequel. Yes. Oh god, that would be it awesome. Could, it could happen, but we got to wait a little while because they tried again in 2011. So uh... Marvel's getting real good with that de-aging technology. I think Oliver Platt could still do it. You see Nick Fury and yep. Captain Marvel? He's like in his 70s. He's running around like it's the 90s again. It is impressive, uh, Brian. If you had to change one thing, what would it be? And do you think it would be a giant wooden ship that's like a blimp shooting cannons at an automatic no. uh, rake? You know, it's. I went into that knowing some of that ridiculousness and I was still like really prepared to give it a shot because I love three musketeers so much and the disasters that have happened and befallen a three musketeers quote unquote franchise where they have nothing to do with one another has just been kind of sad. Really the only thing that I've been excited and stayed excited for was that BBC show. It was 30 episodes long. Definitely check it out. Three seasons. Yeah, I'm sure it was Chris Wal- Christoph Waltz's worst moment. But uh, what is what, what one thing would you change in the 1993 Three Musketeers? <sighs> um, I'm going to echo a lot of Ryan on this. I think at least an attempt at a sequel would have been cool. I, I like to see, or maybe even a prequel. So I don't think Charlie uh, Sheen comes back show. and does it though. Would you Would you do it if you had Platt Sutherland and you had to replace Charlie Sheen with the Absolutely. alien? It's fine. Yeah, we've, got a, we've already got a backup. <laughs> okay. Uh, Ashton Kutcher will handle it. Um, oh, no. <laughs> Too real. Uh, no, but maybe like a prequel where they show like when Rochefort was a musketeer and D'Artagnan. Ooh, yeah. Had, like that, you know, something with a little bit more of the, the camaraderie and how the three really got together and, and stood together and that sort of thing would have so, been nice. That's uh, great. That's a great idea. As for me, this is just a simple edit out. Uh, there's a scene where Tim Curry, and I know I love to everything Tim Curry does, but this scene made no sense to me. It was a loose thread, and he at one point says, Everyone will know when they get these dun-dun-dun carrier pigeons. And then releases these carrier pigeons out, and they don't go to anybody. Nobody gets the note, and it's like this little snippet in the movie that you could just totally cut. And if there was something I wanted to put back in there, I'd rather it be to figure out how uh, Aramis gets out of the, like, everybody's, like, shooting muskets out of him. So I could use another action scene there. So, but, uh, yeah, the carrier pigeons thing was not good. Your one change is my favorite scene. <laughs> Wait, um, the carrier pigeons is your favorite scene? That's what he said. Yeah. Yeah, the, the whole line where he's talking about, thanks to our winged friends here, every mercenary and bounty hunter in France will be waiting for him. Yeah, like, you know, exactly. They're they're going to all these bounty hunters that he knows. And that's why they had to split up and why they were attacked. Full and... disclosure, I was preparing to keep the fl- the show flowing and to keep things moving because we're way long. But uh, wow, I yeah, I'm changing your favorite scene. I'm sorry. <laughs> but I mean, that's the follow up of that scene is them getting fired. The cannons fired at them oh, when they're hung over because the whole idea that the cannons would just start firing on them is because that, that castle. So maybe they just needed a quick scene where that castle received a pigeon and the guy reads the note off the pigeon's leg and he goes, arm the cannons. Yeah. Or if the pigeon had a coconut tied to its foot. Well, we would never be able to determine the speed if it was able to get there fast enough in that instance. What kind of swallow is it by the way? Anyway, sorry. More of a thrush. (laughs) Um, What's your best quote of the movie? Ryan little pimple. (laughs) From Porthos. It's Porthos sad. calling D'Artagnan Little Pimple. 
and, and just that whole scene of like, uh, you know, the Queen of America were on quite intimate terms unless you can prove otherwise. Little pimple meet behind the Luxembourg at one o'clock and bring a long wooden box. That's a, that, that's a good moment. And Porthos has a lot of good ones. Uh, Brian, what about you? Best quote? Yeah, in, a, in an effort to stay away from Porthos quotes, I'm going to go with a uh, Charlie Sheen quote when he's like, uh, you're married? And he goes, and they start to pray. And, and the, the guy, guy breaks in. Down the door. And he goes, he, yeah, and he goes, on second thought, God's often busy and jumps out the window. That is a great, that is a great one. Yep. <laughs> so Paul McGann's got his fingerprints all over my superlatives. And here he is again, this time as his other role of Yusick. And he says, are you coming peacefully or do you intend to resist? And then Porthos says, oh, don't be stupid. Of course we intend to resist. Just give me a moment, all right? And then there's a lot of uh, diatribe as they go into the huddle, as, as Ryan mentioned earlier, and then they come out. And Porthos is like, now we're in, prepared to resist you. So that's my quote. We've come full circle. This is the moment of truth. What are you going to rate this movie on a five-star scale? Let's go, Brian. You can go first, man. I'm giving it a 4.89562. I'm surprised. You're getting rounded up. They only go in uh, half integers. You you can only go to 3.5 or, I mean, sorry, 4.5 or, <laughs> or, or 5. And I'm rounding you up to a 5 on that. So um, Okay, that's yeah. fair. Yeah. No, no uh, thousandths decimal points on this system. Okay. Uh, uh, Ryan, you ready yet? Or you want to you finish us off here on this one? I can go next. Much like our home state of West Virginia, I'm, I'm willing to admit, amongst friends that maybe there are some problems with this movie but if anyone else if anyone else came after it i would cut them so um yeah, i'm with you i give it i give it a, a a west virginia um biased five okay nice so my eyes tell me that this is a 3.5 i had a really fun time with it but my nostalgia my enthusiasm for it kicks it up to a four and it's got a lot of good Tim Curry in there. So, uh, so anyway, uh, I'm 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 gonna be a little bit lower than you guys because I haven't been seeing it every step along the way. But boy, this one sure does take me back to, uh, you know, being eight years old with a sword myself. This one takes me back to the fourth grade. I was just amazed you guys hadn't done swashbuckling movies yet on the show. It felt like such a such a great retro movie thing to to tap tap into. And twenty so. episodes, twenty seven episodes was too far, and we just said we got to put a stop to that and get some swords, uh, some sword play in there. So you have to three musketeers, well, a as as Hugo Weaving said, the Matrix, more. Uh, Ryan, one more time, uh, t- send people to Science uh, or Sort of uh, podcast. Yeah, ScienceSort.com is the website for my podcast. My personal website is RyanHalp.com. I'm on Twitter at Halped, and the show is on Twitter at ScienceSortOf. I'm also on Facebook. I imagine a lot of people we all went to high school with listen to this show, so we're probably already Facebook friends. If if people want to check me out on Twitter or check out the the show on Facebook, um, the show is supported by Patreon. So, you know, we're not a show that runs a ton of ads. We like to make it a community of listeners, much like you guys are trying to build right now. So I, I think it's um great for people to check out the show wherever they check it out. But I don't know what your guys' numbers have looked like. I'll just say as both a plug for uh, Retro Movie Roundtable and My Show Science, sort of, uh, iTunes reviews go a long way towards helping people find the show. Even if you're not necessarily an iTunes user, it's still the vast majority of podcast traffic out on the internet. So if you're a fan of this show or if you check out my show and think that it's not terrible, uh, giving us a rating on iTunes is a huge way to help us maintain and continue to grow our audience. Oh, take the words right out of my mouth. I love it. But anyway, Brian, do you want to help me pick a musical movie for next time? We're about to get to sing-songy here. 
Ooh, okay. I know what I'd pick. Uh, option number one, Newsies from 1992 in a New York City newsboy strike of 1899. Young newspaper sellers are exploited beyond reason by their bosses. They set out to enact change and they are met by ruthless of big business. Option number two, The Wizard of Oz. Dorothy is swept away from Kansas in a magical land of Oz in a tornado and embarks on a quest with her new friends to see the wizard who can help her return home. That's from 1939. And option three, Singing in the Rain from 1952. A silent film production company and cast make a difficult transition to sound. Brian? I think I'll go with The uh, Wizard of Oz. It's been a while since I've seen that, and uh, it's obviously a classic. So, yeah, let's go with Oz. AFI says it's one of the top ten movies ever made. Three Musketeers is what, like eight? So so you're saying that you're off to see The Wizard? The Wonderful I, Wizard. I, I suppose we are. Why? Because why? Because, 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 because. because, because. Well, uh, I think we should, uh, there's three of us here, and I think we should uh, go uh, maybe uh, before I kick it over to Brian, uh, all for one and one, one for all. all. There we go. And more for me. Yes, I, I like that. So thank you all for listening. Please, as Ryan said, give us a rating and review on iTunes. Uh, give us a like on Facebook. And if you want to come on the show, ret- write to us at RetroMovieRoundtable at Yahoo.com. We're always looking to grow the community. So we had a great time. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Brian? I learned a long time ago that worrying is like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it doesn't get you anywhere. <laughs>